Flynn here again today, and I'm here today with Matthew O'Kane from Nexus Investments, which supports the Nexus Group. Um, welcome, Matthew. Hello, Connor. Very nice to meet you. Matthew, can you tell me a little bit about your career and how you got to where you are now? Right now, um, I'm the managing director of a, uh, an investment group called Nexus Investments. We're part of a privately owned group of companies based in London's West End. It's about 80 people in the Nexus group. And the investments arm of the group um, focuses specifically on sourcing and making early stage investments into a number of areas, including data, digital education and health companies um, that we uh, have invested into an advise and nurture. Now my journey to this stage, I suppose, has two or three constituent elements. One of them is um, after I graduated at university, I was involved with a number of interesting ventures uh, over two or three years, including period during the dot-com boom. But I then qualified as a chartered accountant at PricewaterhouseCoopers and went on to have roles in a couple of investment houses, one of which is quite well known called Bridgepoint. I also then spent some time working in structured areas, including EIS, um, when I was working at another, the big four. So about five years ago, I was approached by the owner of Nexus to look at whether I could help him sift through the range of opportunities that arise, particularly in education, because the Nexus group, as well as having an investments division and a number of other arms, is the publisher of and owner of Education Investor. Um, can you give me some examples of the good educational investment that you did in the past? Can you talk me through how you, how you, how you chose to work with that company and how it has gone? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, let's give an example. Um, a company called Knowledge Motion, which uh, is commonly these days referred to by most people as Bowclips, because that is the name of the platform that they have built. Um, we first met the founders of that company uh, in early 2014. At the time, they had spent in the region of seven to eight months uh, developing the idea for their company, having left uh, pretty high-powered jobs within the media sector. Uh, we, as the publishers, I mentioned earlier, Nexus have the education investor um, brand and business within our group. So we immediately understood a proposition of knowledge motion bow clips which was to effectively upscale the provision of video assets to schools uh, school children all over the world but we also really immediately understood that um, the business of selling something directly to schools is is quite a difficult stroke challenging one it certainly takes quite a while to be able to, de to develop the distribution network to be able to do that school wise um, but what we liked and in particular, another investor who came in at the start liked a chap called Sir David Arculus, who um, has a long career involved at the top levels of Pearson. What we all liked was the fact that already these founders had identified that their core proposition was going to be one that was going to help uh, publishers and also um, going forward a mixture of governments and uh, new entrants to the education technology market to effectively address problems that they were all going to themselves be facing going forward i.e the transition from paper-based materials into the digitized world um, that was an example of a business that we could understand deeply because of our our own experience within the education sector and everything that we get to three, see through education investor events and obviously as publishers of the magazine now 
we are four and a half years later and we've therefore been with that business on its journey to date sitting on the board of the company from seed stage literally the first investment round and through to the current position they took a series a round during 2017 um and they are um they're performing very nicely indeed year on year i think year on year growth looking like something like 300 percent and i wouldn't I wouldn't say it's impossible that they will have a further uh, funding round at some stage over the next six to 12 months. And um, if I, if I put it in context, this is on the one hand, a small British based business uh, located in London, uh, staffed predominantly by UK individuals. Um, but its revenues are derived from all four corners of the globe. And it's a good example of where um, founders with vision, uh, allied to ho hopefully they would agree um you know sophisticated but understanding investors who can help them shape a business make sensible decisions around investment staff technology etc etc over a period of time can help to grow um something that has the capacity we still believe to become one day a, a very very large business at the apex of media uh, technology and education when you're looking at an ed tech company and you're getting passionate people who maybe lack in certain skills but very strong on other skills and it's very difficult to tell the size of the market i'm wondering what 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 are you looking for in an ed tech company do you have a rule of thumb or five areas that you look for when you're looking to get by the initial discussions with an ed tech company Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Very happy to um, address that. You, you, you're absolutely right in what you say there, Connor. So um, try and distill it down to five areas. So um, people obviously matter. And as you said, they're usually very able in, mo in many areas. It needs to be, you need to have a degree of vision, don't you? Uh, to start anything, let alone to start a business. Um, but we look for people who we would describe as superstars, um, but commercial. Okay, so it's not quite enough to be a superstar in terms of maybe convincing five people to come and work for you for free. That might sound commercial to some people, but that's probably not commercial in the long run. So superstars who are commercial, um, we look for people and businesses with what we would call business smarts. We, we pay great attention to, to valuation because you have to, and a lot of that's going on a journey with the, with the founders to explain to them what their goal might be, might be to get to a stage in eight years or 10 years time where they can sell a business for X, having retained Y and made Z, shall we say, as a, as a return, and that that is a success and it is not a failure because you have less than X percent of a company at that stage. So the third part matters, of course, is understanding valuation. The fourth part, we've already touched on, I would call it know your customers. Um, either know your customers because you've already got them under your belt and they're paying, and that's great, brilliant position to be in, and obviously you're moving more towards a later stage proposition then. Um, but that can also mean when you're actually starting out, you're in the first year or two, really know and understand why your customers bought from you and why they might buy more next year and fifth is i think this is really important in distinguishing between some investors and others is as far as possible look for businesses and propositions that have some degree of a following wind at least when one's looking three or four years ahead are there certain long-term macro trends mm -hmm. such as for example a trend towards a certain area of compliance mm -hmm. within an area or a trend towards changes in a curriculum 
of a business uh, or, or a country or, you know, or an area of education, be that in the United Kingdom, maybe a, there's, there's a curriculum change coming in the primary schools area, for example. Okay. Generally speaking, for businesses to make it through that first sort of three or four year period, you need to have a little bit of luck. But you also ideally need to have some long term following wins. Um, of course, the clever bit is to try and be kind of ahead of the game, I suppose. And I'll come back to Bo Clips that we talked about earlier, their desire to be sort of the home of video and education, the Netflix of video for education. It's true to say that back in 2013, one could see evidence over the preceding five to seven years of the transformation of the media sector around, for example, music, download and streaming. Uh, also, the transition towards people taking more and more of their information uh, news-wise online rather than just via television and so on and so forth. But, you know, the reality still was that both for the founders and, and from my point of view as a father of two young children, you know, I knew that going into the classroom at my daughter's school, you know, uh, there was a whiteboard now, whereas there was once a blackboard. Mm -hmm. um, but by and large, the use of video was still pretty much restricted to once or twice a term, maybe at the end of term. And that was in a relatively progressive school. And yet I saw that my daughters were spending, you know, a reasonable amount of the weekend either using or wanting to use and access a combination of YouTube and other video assets. So one could see looking ahead, I suppose, back in 2014, one could see that it was likely by 2018 that demand for video was going to be higher. Can you tell me what what trends or behaviors or flows or headwinds or tailwinds do you see at the moment in the educational technology space? Do you mean, so, so when you say headwinds, are you talking more about challenges that are coming or are you looking at it from both sides, positive and negative? Positive tailwinds. Um, so, for example, from my perspective, when we set up um, in 2015, 11% of Irish schools were iPad schools. Now in okay. 2018, 11% of Irish schools are iPad schools. But there was a yeah. feeling at the time that, well, it's obvious, like in three or five years, every school in the country will be an iPad school. But it just didn't happen at all. I'm wondering... But that's probably not a great example when I'm asking you for... No, well, that's, no I understand. I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? And I think, I suppose, what I'm saying is, is trying to spot... Yes, it's trying to identify longer-term macro trends, I suppose, without being a hostage to fortune. So you're not building your entire business model around the idea that you can command X percent of the market. So you, that's a classic example you've just given in some ways of, of the sorts of figures and data that get put into pitch decks sometimes that we see where a business says, well, the, and the, the number that's always trotted out is this sort of five trillion global market right, for education. Um, and so it's always trotted out as, well, if we just take X percent of that and if we just take X percent of this, then it will naturally follow that we're going <laughs> that yeah. something wonderful is going to happen. Um, and, you know, that, that's really tricky. Look, coming back to Hedwin's question, I suppose um, the sheer proliferation of phone technology, particularly in poorer parts of the world, but historically, therefore, lagged behind in the technology space, but now are arguably equal. And I'm thinking of countries like Kenya um, within Africa and then other parts of, of, I suppose, the Eastern world. I think that is a fantastic opportunity. One can understand for oneself what exactly it is that those who are, you know, the recipients and owners of phones would actually want to be able to use by way of educational tools on their phone. And that's not as straightforward as what, what shall we say, in the United Kingdom or the US people might think. 
um, that individuals will want to use. Um, I've got in front of me a piece of statistical information I heard back in May 2015 that was talking about the, uh, the following will be coming, $25 tablets, $9 computers. Mm -hmm. Now, I sort of might throw the question back to you, Connor, I suppose, is like in some ways what you're, what you're playing back to me is the fact that um, three years later, it would appear that that economical um, position probably hasn't quite come to pass in the way that was anticipated back then. Because if it really was $25 tablets, I guess in the Irish schools market, it will be easier for more schools to, <laughs> to be iPad schools, I guess. I don't know. Um, other headwinds, I think, unfortunately, the reality is that budgetary pressures only seem to be going one way. Um, certainly within the junior or primary end of the market. Um, we are a UK firm that tends to focus on UK educational businesses and ed tech. So I cannot speak uh, and wouldn't ever dream of trying to speak for um, what might be happening in other parts of the world when it comes to how budgets get decided between schools and local areas and government and so on and so forth. But I can only tell you the example of one of our other investments is a company called Pobble. They do wonderful things with a platform that assists with the uh, teaching and understanding of literacy. Um, it started as a business that was going to was used by UK primary schools. Um, think of it like a virtual classroom wall, but for writing rather than for pictures. So, you know, I don't know if you've sort of experienced the same, but when I go into school and see my my seven year old, particularly wants to show me all of her pictures on the wall, all of her work, and part of that she wants to show me writing. So, so Pobble was is a fantastic fantastic uh, innovation what's been fascinating is to see over the two or three years we've known Pobble that actually that's ended up becoming a, a outward looking global business partly as a reaction to the fact that in the United Kingdom state school primary school market budgetary pressures have been so strong each year as in declining amounts available for head teachers every year to spend on innovation and so on and so forth especially when under pressure to, to, to reduce classroom assistant numbers, but increase classroom sizes, et cetera. Um, they've ended up sort of accepting and realizing that in order to drive their business, they, they, they can't hold themselves too tightly to certain ideals that they might've started out with. Um, and, you know, state, state sector budgetary pressures are, um, you know, a big challenge and, and businesses have to be really smart to that. And it's very hard to, from our point of view, if someone comes to see us and they have a great innovation and they say that they can sell something into schools, primary schools, let's say in the United Kingdom, we say, well, what's your distribution method? They go, well, we, I've gone and spoken to five schools near me and they all love this. It's like, no, step, stop a second. You know, will they refer you? Probably not. Even if they refer you within the city, will they refer you in the county? Probably not. Will they refer you into further counties and other parts of Great Britain? Almost certainly no, because there's not that sort of network that exists within the education sector. Um, so budgetary pressures are tricky, which means that people tend to gravitate more towards starting businesses maybe that could be attractive um, in the ed tech space to be used in the private sector. Um, in the UK, we call it the public school system. Um, it becomes quite fascinating then because then you get back to, and I don't, I don't want to go into this area because I don't have strong views myself, but often you end up in that kind of philosophical discussion about 
what is the purpose of education you know is it to enable the largest number of people to to upscale their skills and to you know to develop what they need to develop in life and should it be the, the restriction of the privileged few now as i say i don't have strong views on it at all but i i, I can see and it concerns me slightly that some elements of education tech uh, for business reasons end up gravitating more towards um, having customers who are who are better to do, shall we say, whether that's parents, schools, um, sometimes even teachers, you know, um, yeah, better to do who who have budgets and funds available to to invest in uh, bringing five thousand new pieces of fantastic innovation into a school. Where that will play out over the years comes going to be fascinating to see. So. Matthew, you said that you, you offer a lot of advice and you work very close with EdTech founders. In your opinion, in comparison to other industries, how good are EdTech founders at listening, learning, taking your advice? <laughs> um, they're some of the most pleasurable people to spend time with because they generally have uh, unlimited wells of positivity and energy. Um, certainly for the first two and a half years of, uh, of any journey that we've been on with any of our uh, founders, EdTech founders. Actually, they are very open, as a, in my experience, they are generally very open to advice from people that they trust. Their default position is usually to trust. Mm -hmm. What that tends to mean, therefore, is that there's sort of a, a honeymoon period that we have experienced, but then... I've seen with other businesses, I suppose, that we meet, where if someone's within the first six months of working with them, generally their word goes. Um, that then changes over time. One thing I would say is that because the philosophy of why a company has been founded tends to run deeper within edtech businesses and edtech founders than in certain other sectors, in my experience, to give you an example, we've also invested into a retail tech business uh, and in, we have a fintech business as well. I would say that the retail e-commerce business is quicker to spot commercial opportunities and, and have less concerns about twisting and turning their way in the direction of following the money. Okay, I don't mean investment money, I mean you know revenue. Um, by comparison, I found that quite honorably, um, some of the ed tech businesses that, that we've either worked with or more, more commonly that we meet and then we start probing and seeing if we could work with them, one tends to find that they are, they are more prepared to stick with whatever their vision is uh, and take a lot longer to come round to the idea that, do you know what? If you made £400,000 worth of sales last year, and cash is now tight and you've got an opportunity to twist and turn and maybe turn that into 800,000 next year, but you might have to give up one little element of what you've held dear for the, for the vision. Um, that might be a better way to go than to try and go and raise another 250,000 pounds from the existing investors and just keep plowing on in the direction you are. You know, the cheapest investment you can ever receive as a company is revenues. Yeah. And that's one thing we do find that we say more to the EdTech founders than most of the other founders, or rather it takes a bit longer sometimes in the nicest way for them to buy into it. The really good ones, and the chap, for example, who drives Boclets forward, I would say absolutely grasps this, is, is the fact that, you know, if you can get some deals done, get some, some revenues moving, even if you have to revisit some of those 
uh, undertakings at a later stage as the biz- each business and you know molds and grows and emerges looking sometimes slightly different that's fine because once you build a trust with your customers and your suppliers that you are all working together then generally businesses are very amenable um, to revisiting so you know take that plunge follow the money follow the money that's a difficult thing for a lot of ed tech founders to get their heads around because they haven't worked in a commercial environment a lot of them have worked in schools or in training or in more pastoral roles yes that's a great word pastoral i i I absolutely get that and and one wouldn't want to lose that you know but if it was like build me the perfect ed tech founder they'd have that sensibility around the pastoral element and they'd have a long-term vision and goal of of achieving a positive outcome but they would understand that you know they're, they're going into business they're asking people to come into business with them as investors and to bring advice and money um and you know it is not the same as for example setting up a trust foundation to do charitable works okay they, they are quite different paths they, uh, they they require entirely different mindsets um, and very occasionally one does I, I think you're alluding to the same thing uh, is that you know very occasionally you do you do meet in business and think this is a great idea but it, it really should be taken as a great idea to a you know to someone already running a a business in the sector or maybe involved in some sort of foundation or trust work and add add this product to their suite of things they already provide rather than saying we think this could be a 20 million pound business and we like investment into our equity <laughs> they're quite different really really very different ethoses of course and have you ever given that advice to an edtech founder who's come to you don't start a company, go to a company and pitch this idea and try to work inside the company to get your idea. Yes, I actually said it a couple of days ago to um, a very, very able and impressive uh, lady who came to see us, who who has already started a business and and has a good idea. I, I, I won't, you know, I should preserve some confidences, I suppose, has a good idea based on a change that's coming in the national curriculum um, in the next year or two of a service that would be probably quite an essential service and very helpful to a lot of schools uh, in order to be able to teach certain aspects of the curriculum going forward. But by her kind of, I suppose, own acknowledgement, her background is completely outside of education. She she is interested to work in this area now because she has children. She sees some of the challenges in the schools that her children go to. She thinks what a great opportunity. And she's been quite commercial in her areas of business over the years. However, um, the thing that we said to her was, you know, what is your distribution route here? And it became apparent that there's no, no, there isn't one at the moment. Or to put it another way, this business would then take some money and then would think about who could be the salespeople and where they would go and sell and how we might do it. There are, there are training businesses out there, materials businesses out there, uh, advisory businesses out there that have been going for decades, mm. yeah, who have all the infrastructure in place, you know, all the relationships. And, you know, this is what I liked coming back, keep coming back to both clips, but I tried to give some live examples. What we liked about them uh, when we first met them was they were trying to solve a problem to do with the use of video in the classroom in place of photos and paper books going forward. But rather than think, oh, well, the people who will benefit from this are schools and teachers, so let's go and talk to them. They, they thought a bit harder about who, who else in this supply chain might have a challenge going forward. You know, and they identified that it was probably publishers and other providers of historic materials who would need to move into the digitized environment going forward in the coming years and might therefore benefit from someone emerging on the scene who could help them. Um, 
and so that was the advice I gave in parallel to this lady a couple of days ago. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. She, she was quite sort of, she started to be quite understanding to it. It's hard though, because what you're really saying to someone is you, you might've started this with a dream that you could have a 10 or 20 million pound company. And what I'm really saying is might it not be better to have a 1 million pound company where you make a 200,000 pound profit every year, simply from providing your service to people who can really do something with it. And that, not that many people get so excited about that, even though I might argue that if you could sustain that over a 10 year period, you, you will be, you would be very well off, have a lot of flexibility and freedom to do interesting things in your time. Um, you could probably go on and start other businesses that would then become multi-million pound businesses. And Matthew, what, what warning signs are you looking for when talking to EdTech uh, founders? Like what, what things are you listening for where you go, all right, it doesn't matter how good the idea is, this ain't happening. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great question. Um, um, because I've spent my career, I suppose, working around um, financial terminology uh, as, a, as an accountant, but also sort of from an investment side of things and a taxation side of things, um, it's, it's, accept, it's, it's acceptable once or twice if people kind of use financial terminology in slightly strange ways that don't bear reality. Um, but eventually, if someone tells me too often that with this, this will be the last funding round, I say, um, with this money, we will get to cash flow break even, or you know, we will be in profit state as of next, whatever, August. And then we say, can you show us the no, that sounds fantastic, you know, so can we have a look at the cash flow and everything else? And then they send it through and maybe, you know, next August it makes a £10 profit, but then September again it's making a £100,000 loss or whatever, you know, giving an extreme example. You know, we end up saying, you know, the, you, these are just phrases that have been trotted out. You, you've heard these phrases should excite investors, but there's no link to reality in your specific position here. So that, that often is... Um, it's quite tricky if it happens two or three times in the course of a series of meetings. Mm-hmm. I think we end up thinking, well, what else, what else are we being told that we don't realize is not quite, you know, rooted in reality, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe around a technical aspect that isn't our strong suit. Um, so that, that's one point. I think, um, I mean, there is a point around over ambitious valuations being resolutely defended mm-hmm. where the valuations maybe have been based on the concept of, well, the last round was at X valuation. There's now been 16 months in the meantime, the passing of those months must mean that our next valuation will be X plus 20% or whatever it might be rather than, but what milestones have been passed, you know, is it possible that the previous investors overpaid? Yeah. What might there have been in for the previous investors that justified that price that isn't in it for the new investors? Mm-hmm. So it's not so much just the overambitious nature of valuations. It's more the too steadfastly digging heels in on the basis that that's what one's read on, you know, TechCrunch or LinkedIn or whatever it might be, you know, the cult of the founder type blog of which there are thousands and thousands of them out there. Um, we, we kind of prefer to see a little bit, I suppose, what we would call a bit of openness to the fact that there might be other points of view, sensible points of view in, in let's call it the market and from experience, which hopefully we, we, we can prove to people that we bring. 
I think the other thing, another red flag, Connor, um, getting sort of into the nitty gritty now, I suppose, of, of why one might choose to go with one business rather than another, is often the slight absence of what I would call kind of cautious, sensible business or finance people around a founder. Um, as I would put it, sort of people who can help them avoid doing deals or chasing top line growth, you know, on, on, on weak foundations. I'll, gi- I'll give you an example of how this can manifest itself, um, hopefully sort of in, in the nicest possible way. It is not unusual for a deck or a slide PowerPoint to be both presented in an incredibly beautiful style, often having paid designers quite a lot of money to, to present it in a certain way. A kind of, there's a little bit of me that says they're the people doing the best out of the, certainly the UK early stage scene. It's designers presenting fantastic decks to people. But the other one is you often have a slide with sort of 20 faces on them and maybe 11 faces of the team are, are in the business. But then there might be nine, as many as nine or ten faces or names that are, are listed as sort of advisors in inverted commas. And, and it's, never, it's often not very clear what their accountability is. Mm-hmm. There's often an absence of a chairperson or, or someone who, who can be the figurehead. So from our point of view as looking at a new company, you know, we want to know just because you know, the reality is anyone who's worked for a business that's in the FTSE 350 or any of the big accounting or legal or financial firms or banking firms or any, any brand that you've heard of, you know, they will be able to put a blue chip name against somebody. But understanding what the relevance of that blue chip name is to the actual advice or role that the advisor is giving, or are they just someone who said at the start, this looks great, you know, if you ever want to give me a call, I'm happy to have a chat. You know, let's have a coffee every six months. You know, I'll give you a bit of my thoughts. That doesn't carry so much credence, but I think it's assumed, judging by what often comes, you know, comes around in pitch decks, that simply by an association with some well-known brands, that must automatically rub off on the company itself. I, I want to understand what is the accountability um, what, you know, what has been agreed with someone as an advisor? If they're from Unilever originally, are they investing? First of all, what role do they have in Unilever? You know, may, maybe they maybe they were involved as a legal person in, in Unilever. So if they're listed on a deck that's to do with an education, stroke, health, food business, you know, it, it gives the veneer of you know someone who, who understands that sector, but they might understand it quite well, but from the context of legal contracts only not maybe what you might have first inferred, which was, oh, here's someone who'll understand how to market, you know, your product in such a way to, you know, to build up market share. So Matthew Kane from Nexus Investments, thank you very much for talking with us here today. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you, Connor. And um, you know, if anyone's interested to understand more about what we do, um, we have a web presence. One can either go to uh, www.ni. V for vertigo, L for Leicester.co.uk, so nivel.co.uk. And we also have our fund website, which has just launched, which is at scaleupfund.co.uk. Thanks for listening to The Future of Schools with Connor Flynn. If you like our show and want to know more about the future of schools or Adaptomy, check us out at www.adaptomy.com. Or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us next week when we talk to another leading light in the world of educational technology.